one you can see up here, the name of our lesson this morning is The Lamb is Born. We're actually entering into the third part on our general outline, which you have at the very beginning of your books. You can see the general outline. We have talked about the preface for the life of Christ. We've talked about the pre-incarnation of Christ. And now we are beginning the preparation years of Christ. A very special event had finally taken place in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, one about which they had prayed for many, many long years. A son was finally born to them. The birth of this son was special in that it was a miracle of God because we discussed this, Elizabeth, the mother, had been barren, and besides that, she had been well beyond the age of normal childbearing when this child was conceived. So the birth of John the Baptist was miraculous. It was also part of prophetic history. Their baby son was the prophesied herald or forerunner of the Messiah himself. Therefore, he was a fulfillment of several prophecies. One of them was Malachi 3.1, another fulfillment that said that there would be a forerunner or a herald for the Messiah. You will find in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, and you can look those up on your own but he was part of prophetic history. Now, God had commanded in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 17, he had commanded circumcision for all of Abraham's descendants. It was to be a sign of faith in the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham. It uh, didn't save a person. It's kind of like baptism. It was a sign to show that they had faith in God's promise to Abraham. Circumcision was a sign just kind of like identifying the male Jew with, with the Abrahamic promise, which, of course, centered on the fact that the Messiah was coming, just like baptism is a, is a sign that we identify ourselves with, you know, faith in Jesus Christ. So it identified the male Jew with, the, with that covenant. So the eighth day, and, of course, um, they have found medically that the best day, the, the, the best day medically, I don't know of another way to say that, to circumcise a child is on the eighth day. So God always, of course, knows what he's talking about. The, on the eighth day, they would circumcise their male babies. So just according to um, the law and, and uh, what, the, what the Jews knew to be best, Zacharias and Elizabeth took their little baby son to have him circumcised in order to identify him with God's covenant promises which, of course, as I said, centered on uh, the promised Messiah to come through Abraham's descendants. So let's look now at um, under the part where we're talking about, we're going to cover two main divisions. We're going to look at the birth of John, and I want to do that really quickly because I don't want to lose time and not have enough time to spend on the birth of Jesus. The second thing we're going to look at is the birth of Jesus. Now, under the birth of John, we're going to look at Zacharias naming his son, then Zacharias praising God, and then Zacharias prophesying of John, his son. We're going to begin with uh, Zacharias naming his son. And so for this, let's look at verses 57 to 66 of Luke 1. You're in Luke chapter 1. Start at verse 57. We'll go to verse 66. It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, This 
there is none of thy kindred or your relatives that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table or tablet and wrote saying his name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay, what we have here is on the day, the eighth day, they took the baby John. Of course, nobody knew his name at this point. But they took the baby to have him circumcised. And, of course, all the friends and family and relatives came with him because this was really a momentous occasion. Just the fact that Elizabeth and Zacharias had a child after all those years, people knew something special was going on. Now, it was the custom, the Jewish custom, for the father to officially announce the name which, had been, which they had selected for their baby child. And generally, although this isn't always the case, but generally speaking, the, a firstborn son was named after for his father. So the relatives of, and the friends which um, attended, I should have this up here, which attended this special occasion, they were going to be in for quite a surprise on this particular day. What happened, the custom was that immediately before the actual surgical operation, which was performed by the rabbi, right before the operation, there was a benediction, you know, a blessing was pronounced. And then immediately following the surgery on the little baby, as I imagine he was screaming his head off, can you imagine, look at that poor little kid, <laughs> not too excited about this. Uh, but immediately after the surgery, a prayer was recited. And now they still, the Jewish people still, of course, have the, they, they go through the same custom yet today. So we can pretty much know what the prayer that was recited for John the Baptist was, because essentially the same prayer today. It was this. They would say, our God and the God of our fathers raise up this child to his father and mother and let his name be called in Israel blank. And then they would say the son of, in this case, Zacharias. And when it was time to say, you know, be called in Israel blank, they would look to the father, and the father at that point in time would say what the name was, okay? Now, in this special occasion, they had a little bit of a problem because Zacharias, the father, couldn't say the name. So it was assumed, apparently, it was assumed by the rabbi and all the people gathered there, and I think they were trying to actually honor Zacharias, who was a priest and probably um, looked up to in the community. He was a godly man. I think they all assumed that they would honor him by having the little baby called Zacharias. <clears throat> so apparently during that prayer the rabbi said his name shall be called in Israel Zacharias the son of Zacharias and then the rest of the prayer goes like this let his father rejoice in the issue of his loins and his mother in the fruit of her womb. Well at tiny little John's um, circumcision ceremony everything would have proceeded according to tradition up to the point where the rabbi would have said the name and then apparently what happened it was at that moment that Elizabeth interrupted the rabbi and this would get everybody's attention you know because a woman wasn't supposed to speak up anyway but she interrupted and she said not so no this is actually in verse 60 I'm not making this up if you look there in verse 60 she said not so but he shall be called John now this unexpected intervention would have shocked the relatives and all the people who were there to share this occasion. 
why would this child be named John instead of being named for his aging father? That would be the first thing they would wonder about. And, uh, you know, it broke tradition. And you'll see as we go through our Life of Christ study, one thing the Jews did not like was when you broke tradition. A lot of people today don't like it when, you know, we've never done it that way before. You know, tradition is it's an enemy a lot of times. Well, Luke tells us that these people turned to Elizabeth and they asked her, or they said in verse 61, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. You know, they couldn't think of any of her relatives or Zacharias's relatives who had the name John. So they're saying, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you calling him John? It was not only uncommon for a woman to the mother to state the name of the child, even though the father and mother could agree privately, you know, it was the father's calling. He, he had the final word on the name there. So it was unusual that she spoke up and, and uh, gave the name, but it was also unnatural that they decided on his name John when they couldn't, I mean, her father's name obviously wasn't John. Nobody was named John. So naturally, the people then thought, well, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. So who did they turn to? They turned to Zacharias, the father, to determine what he actually wanted his son to be called. And as we learned back in Luke 1, verses 18 to 20, uh, 18 to 20, Zacharias had been struck dumb when he had doubted the word of the Lord spoken through Gabriel. When Gabriel had told him that his wife would conceive, he doubted him, he questioned him, and so he was made mute. Guess what we find out now? Apparently, he was also made deaf. He couldn't hear either. Because what did the people have to do to get his attention, to, to tell him what they wanted? They had to make signs. And I don't know if they had an early sign language or what, or if they just somehow figured out, you know, <laughs> pointing to the baby and what do you want to call him. But anyway, he got the message. He knew what they wanted. And so he asked for a writing tablet. And here he is writing on the tablet. I said, what do you want to call the son? And what did he write? His name is John. Like there's no question about it. His name is John. His name was established before the foundation of the world. No question. Gabriel told him what to name the child, and there was no question about it. His name is John. He had disobeyed God once before when he had questioned God. He had learned his lesson. He was not going to disobey him again, and so his son's name was going to be John. Remember, Gabriel had told him to name the son John, so there was no doubt about it. That's, you know, the last time uh, we saw Zacharias, he was doubting God. Last time he had his voice. Now, the next time we see him with a voice, he's going to be praising God. He had learned a lot in those nine or ten months of silence. Now we find out he was not only silent, but his whole world around him had been silent too, right? Because he had been not only deaf, a dumb, he was deaf. Well, as soon as he wrote down, his name is John, what happened? A miracle. In front of all those witnesses, his tongue was loosed, and I assume he could also hear and the first thing that he did is that he praised God uh, with his regained voice. Um, and what he spoke, is we're going to look at that next, but it, apparently in verse 65 it tells us that it produced such wonder in the people and awe, you know, in the people, that they began to proclaim the things that he told them throughout the whole countryside there in Judea. So they were really awestruck. And they, they went out and they proclaimed this to all the people who lived around them in Judea. Now, this was the hill country. This wasn't in Jerusalem. 
This was the hill country outside, probably near Hebron. If you have those maps, you can look and see where I'm talking about. So after praising God, Zacharias then would have told the people with his loose tongue, he would have told them all the fantastic things which he had to have been silent about for eight or, uh, nine or ten months. He couldn't tell anybody. I'm sure he wrote it out to Elizabeth on his little slate tablet, but he, for the most part, he had to be quiet about these things. So now he's able to share with everybody about what went on that wonderful day when he was performing his priestly duty, his once-in-a-lifetime duty of putting the incense on the, the altar in front of the Holy of Holies. And Gabriel, the archangel of God, came and visited him, and he shared all about Gabriel's amazing words regarding the special role in prophetic history that his son would play. Of course, he also told them that Gabriel said they would have a son. And then he told them um, about the, the fact that Gabriel said his son would be filled with the Holy Ghost from the even the time of his mother's womb. He told them how the, Gabriel said that his son would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and that he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord, which he would do in the spirit and in the power of who? Spirit and power of who? Which prophet? Elijah, right. And of course, all of this information caused the people to realize, if they hadn't before, they now fully realized that this newly circumcised little baby boy was a very special little boy. I'm sure they thought he was special before this because of the fact that Elizabeth had been barren and she was even old, you know, something special about him. But now they really knew. And verse 66 tells us that they laid up all that they heard where? In their hearts. We hear this quite a bit. They laid it up in their hearts and they, they asked among themselves and in their own minds, what manner of child shall this be? Obviously, the sense of destiny surrounded this little baby boy. And the people were going to hold all of these things in their hearts. And they were going to wait and see what would happen as this child grew up to be a man. What would happen? Now, apparently, Zacharias had used the last nine or ten months very profitably. He seemingly learned a whole lot more about himself and his heart and his faith and his relationship to God than he had ever known about himself before. He no longer displayed doubt, but he demonstrated genuine belief in every word that Gabriel had spoken to him. So the lesson to us to learn from Zacharias is that affliction can do us some good, can it? When trials come into our lives, as came into his life when he was struck deaf and dumb, they can be for our own good because I don't think there's any time in our lives when we learn as much about ourselves and our true spiritual condition and our true relationship with God and do we really stand on the promises of God? Do we really understand and claim those promises in the valley as much as we do on the mountaintop? Really, you know, that's why God brings trials into our lives because he knows how much we learn about ourselves in those and how we are. What we're supposed to do is draw closer to him right? And many people you see the opposite. They do the wrong thing. They draw away from him, pull away when they should draw closer to him. But Zacharias didn't. He learned a lot about himself and he came out on the other end of this trial, a much better man. Okay. His praise, let's see, did we read that verses 67 to 75? No, we didn't. All right. Let's look at verse 67 to 75. Zacharias praises God. 
And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he sware to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. All right, this is what is called the Benedictus. Remember, we've had the Beatitude, which was spoken by Elizabeth, then we had the um, Magnificat, which was a song of praise, sung or spoken by Mary. And now, if you want to know, this is called the Benedictus, and it was spoken by Zacharias. It's a praise song. In the first part of this prophetic praise song, which I don't imagine he sang, but that's what they call it, Zacharias announced that Israel's salvation was at hand. In fact, it's interesting to look at what he spoke in those first few verses there um, because it's worded in the past tense. So it's almost like the whole, you know, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, all three members of his family had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, John was filled when he leapt in Elizabeth's womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. And then Elizabeth had been filled with the Holy Spirit when she first saw Mary and heard Mary's voice. And then she pronounced the beatitude, it's called. And now, the father. He was the last one. Shouldn't have been that way. He should have been the first one, but he messed up. So now he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he pronounces this wonderful blessing. But the way he does it is interesting because everything is, um, it's like the Holy Spirit picked him up and put him in the future so that what he's speaking, he's looking back on. So it's almost like the, the Messiah has already come. Now, we know Jesus hasn't been born yet. John was born six months before the Lord Jesus. But it's like Zechariah is looking in the past tense. Here's what he says. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited. He's already, it's like he's already visited and redeemed his people. And he has, hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What he's saying here is interesting because he's, he's saying that God is not, had not forgotten his promise to send a redeemer, a deliverer, from the seed of David. You know, he's mentioning the Davidic covenant here. In fact, he says that it was actually the Lord God of Israel who visited his people and redeemed his people. So what is that again? We see this over and over again. The Lord God of Israel hath visited his people. It's saying that Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who came and visited his people, that he is the Lord God of Israel. Again, it's another claim to the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 69, he refers to the Messiah or the Redeemer as, the, um, as a horn of salvation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I hope it's in your notes. I can't remember. But horns in the Bible symbolically speak of power. What does an animal fight with? You know, an animal that has horns, <laughs> like an elk or something. The horns speak of might or strength or, or power. You see a lot of horns in the book of Revelation. So the horn of salvation, that is a messianic title for the Messiah. And actually, King David was promised the horn of salvation that would come through his line, his lineage. So here, again, he's saying that the, um, that the Messiah had come. It's, a, it's a, a reference also to the Davidic covenant. And he went on then to state that God had never neglected this world. 
never has neglected this world. He hasn't just didn't create the world and then go back up, sit on the throne, and let the world run itself. As a matter of fact, he's been very involved in this world from the very beginning, because he always sent his word to man, and he did so through his uh, special spokesman, the prophets, and that's what he says in verse 70. He's talking about God's prophets. So God had been very involved in saving his people from their enemies as well. That's in verses 71 to 74. He'd been very involved in keeping his covenant promise not only to David, but also to Abraham. And in return, look at verses 74 and 75, in return for that, God wanted his people to serve him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness all the days of their lives. Same thing God wants of you and me. Then he saw in his son's birth the beginning of the program which would climax with the with redemption for the nation of Israel and in fact redemption for the entire world. Now, I did all that real quickly. You're going to have to look at your notes and study it more in depth, but I, I don't want to lose time for the birth of Jesus. But uh, the people who would have been hearing Zacharias say all these words now were wondering what relationship th this newly circumcised boy child named John would have in regard to God's promised redemptive program. And how would this little John, how would he specifically fit into this picture? And to answer that question, we look at the rest of the Benedictus, verses 76 to 80, and we learn three aspects of John the Baptist's divinely appointed ministry. We're going to talk about his position, his preaching, and his preparation. So let's look first at uh, Zacharias prophesying about his son John. And for that, I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 80. And thou, child, now Zechariah's turned, and he's probably looking at his little son, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. That's El Elyon. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Now, the day spring is a name, another name. We have horn of salvation is a name for the Messiah, and so is day, the day spring is a name, another name for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the day spring. Verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness. That is speaking of the Gentiles and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet. Now, that's speaking of the Jews into the way of peace. One thing the Jews have always wanted and still want is peace. The Messiah would come not only to bring light to those sitting in darkness, in other words, he'd be the savior for the Gentiles, but he would be the one who would guide the feet of the Jews to peace. The only time they're ever gonna know peace is when they finally know the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. All right, in verse 80, it says, now Zacharias has finished talking. In verse 80, it's just Luke speaking. It says, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. All right, John the Baptist was to be, I'm just going to quickly highlight some of this. He's going to be a prophet of the highest. And um, that, as I told you, is the name God the Most High, El Elyon. It's interesting um, 
to realize that John was really, John the Baptist was really, I know this is the New Testament, but John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, I say that because he actually lived and ministered and died before Jesus Christ redeemed men, you know, and um, on the cross. So he is considered, and he came in the, in the power and in the style of an Old Testament prophet, such as um, Elijah. Whereas all, but he was different in this aspect. Whereas all other Old Testament prophets had anticipated or had looked forward to the coming of the, of the Messiah, John the Baptist had the special unique privilege of introducing the Messiah to the Jewish people and in effect to the world. So he was unique in that aspect. Now the Lord Jesus himself explained John's ministry in Luke chapter 7, verse 27. This is what he said. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He said, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So, and that was a reference to Malachi 3.1. This was our, it's funny, this was our church bulletin <laughs> yesterday. This was on the cover of, of my church, uh, the bulletin, and it says, make straight the way of the Lord. And I thought, oh, I can use that as a transparency because that's what John the Baptist did. That's fulfillment of, um, that's uh, Isaiah. That's in Isaiah chapter 40. But anyway, he fulfilled, John the Baptist was a prophetic fulfillment not only of Malachi 3.1, which you can look up, but also Isaiah verses 40 to um, chapter 40 verses 3 to 5 which speak of the one who would be a voice you know crying in the wilderness and where was he crying where did he do his ministry in the desert in the wilderness and he would say prepare ye the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God so he was the one who kind of paved the way we would say because Jesus was coming right behind him Okay, John's future ministry, according to his father's inspired words, were that he would give his people the knowledge of salvation. Now, um, was he able to actually give them salvation? No. He would tell them about the one who would come and offer them, be able to offer them salvation. But he himself, he knew. They came to him and they asked him, are you the Messiah? And of course he knew. No, he's, what did he say? He said, uh, I'm not even worthy to, to un to loose the latchet of his the shoes. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He, Messiah, he knew exactly what his position was. He was the bridegroom and uh, proclaiming. He was the, the friend of the bridegroom pro proclaiming the bridegroom. <laughs> Get that out. So anyway, his purpose was to solely introduce the Messiah, the Israel to her Messiah. Now, it is interesting. I pointed out the difference between the pronouns in verse 79 where he said that the messiah would give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death that's a clear reference to the gentiles and uh, this is really another reference back to the fulfillment of the um the um i didn't finish that verse that's why i'm confused oh let me read the whole verse where is it to give light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet. No, that's not the verse I'm looking for. There's a verse that says all. Maybe I read that earlier. Anyway, there's a verse in there that speaks about all people. I can't find it right now. If you see it, let me know. 
all people. That's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant, and they would understand that because it was through Abraham's seed that all families of the earth would be blessed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay, now here in verse 79, he's saying that, and this would shock the Jewish people because they, they were very exclusive. They didn't think a Gentile would be saved unless that Gentile was converted to Judaism. But here he's saying that, no, this Messiah is not just for us, the Jews. He's going to be for them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He's going to be a savior for the whole world. This would be rather shocking news for them to hear. And then, of course, I told you how he changes pronouns and says, and to guide our feet, there he's speaking to his own people, the Jews, into the way of peace. And as I said, if there's anything the Jewish people have always needed, it's peace, but they'll never find it until they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because he's the Prince of Peace. And then John the Baptist would prepare the way for the day spring. And I love that title for Jesus Christ. There's other references to Jesus Christ uh, similar to that. For example, in Malachi, he's called the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N son you know, of righteousness. He's also called the light of the world. He's referred to as the bright and morning star in Revelation, a light that shineth in a dark place. He's called the day star. So all of this is a reference, um, is a beautiful reference to the fact that in, in what Zacharias was saying was that it was the beginning, you know, is the dawning of a new day because the kingdom of God was at hand. You know, they say it always gets the darkest right before the dawn. And Jesus Christ is the, he's the sunrise, that's what we could call him. Uh, he's our day spring. He's the light to those trapped in the darkness of their sin and therefore are standing in the shadow of death. Okay, and then in verse 80, this is the only verse that we have in the Bible regarding the pre-ministerial life of John the Baptist. And it tells us of both his physical growth, which was normal, it says, and the child grew, and it speaks of his spiritual growth, which was abnormal. It was more than, it was, it was really good because it says he waxed strong in spirit, which you would expect from a boy turning into a young man who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. So he grew into a very godly spiritual man. He was born into a priestly family. Actually, I told you before, not only did his father come from the Levitical, the line of the Levitical priesthood, but his mother was a descendant of the Aaron, you know, the Aaronic priesthood. But he would not learn, which would normally be the case, he would grow up the son of a, pre a preacher, the son of a priest, and he would learn to be a priest. He would grow up learning how to minister in the temple. But uh, instead of that, there's a switch here. He would grow up and follow in the role of the prophet Elijah, living in a desolate wilderness. And his parents were very obedient to the Lord God in this respect because instead of rearing him there in the hill country of Hebron, they took him to the desert. And they reared him, and this was a sacrifice for, for them as well. They reared him in the desert so as to obey God's desire to keep John separate from the world and separate, therefore, from temptations. It was, you know, the desert would definitely be a place of quiet solitude where John could learn to meditate on God and spend a lot of time learning about God and speaking to God in prayer. He was brought up to take his Nazarite vow very seriously. He never did cut his hair, he never did take strong drink, and he never did touch anything unclean. He was to be set apart for a very special ministry 
and he knew that, he understood that from his godly parents, and he obeyed that from his childhood on. Okay, now we will be talking many more times about John the Baptist, but we're going to drop him right now, and we're going to switch over to looking at the birth of Jesus. And under this section, we're going to look at four subdivisions. We're going to talk about Caesar's tax, Joseph's trip, Mary's time, and the shepherd's tidings. So we'll begin with the birth of um, uh, Jesus looking at... Well, and first of all, I want to just talk about some things in general before we actually get into that. Um, I wanted to, first of all, start out by giving you some st statistics. Of the many days... You know, if you added, if you multiplied <clears throat> 33 years, that's how long the Lord was here during his earthly visitation. If you multiplied 33 years times 360 days, and I say that because the Jewish calendar was 360 instead of 365, I don't know what you'd get because I didn't bother to do that. And anybody who's a really good mathematician could just shout that figure out to me right now. <laughs> but there's a lot of days, okay? But there are, only, there are actually less than 40 of his days that are recorded for us in the scripture. So out of all those many days of 33 years, we only have 40 of, you know, and we don't have the whole day either. We just have certain events that occurred on particular days. But there is actually less than 40 days of his life recorded in the scriptures. And therefore, it should not surprise us when we come to the preparation years of Christ's life that there's really very, very little written about the first 30 years of his life. You know, he, he started his public ministry when he was 30. But those first 30 years, we have very little information about. The pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ, his birth, um, his childhood, or the events which immediately followed his birth. You know, there's a lot that we talk about at Christmas time, all those events that we'll be looking at t to this morning. And then his childhood. All those events occur only in four chapters. We have Matthew 1 and 2, and we have Luke 1 and 2. And then there's only one, and it's also in Luke 2, there's only one, really one brief account of anything regarding his childhood. And you all know what that was, right? When he was 12 years old, and he, his parents took him to Jerusalem, and then they couldn't find him, and he was in his father's house, he was in the temple, talking with the religious leaders. That's the only, that's the single incident we have from his childhood. And even that's in Luke chapter 2. So the only things we have about the Lord before he turned 30 and started his public ministry are found in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2. Just four chapters. We're going to find that each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, become increasingly more detailed as they progress. As each author gets closer and closer to the end of the Lord's life, we, find we have greater detail. So it looks like we're really going to whip through the, the life of Christ, you know, we're going to easily do this in one year. Wrong. <laughs> we're whipping through because there's just not that much in the Gospels about these early years. But as we go, it gets more and more detailed. And here's some statistics which are interesting. Um, over one-third of Matthew's Gospel presents merely the last six months of Christ's life. Uh, and then what do we have? 37% um, of Mark's gospel is devoted to those last six months. Luke, can you believe this? Luke spends 58% of his book to tell us about the last six months of Christ's life. And John almost ties with him. John, um, his, his gospel, 57% of it is spent on just the last six months of Christ's life. And then it gets even more... Um, 
startling when you look at the statistics concerning the Lord's last six weeks, not six months, but the last six weeks of his life. Matthew devoted one-fourth or 25% of his book just to tell us about that last week, which they call the Passion Week. One-fourth of Matthew is devoted to the Passion Week. Mark spent 31% of his book on the Passion Week. Luke spent 21%, and John spent a grand total of 38% of his book on the last week of the Lord's life. And then I even have one more statistic. I didn't have this on the other books, but John, can you see that? John spent 35% of his gospel on the last day of the Lord's life. That's pretty incredible. So you see what I mean? It gets more and more detailed. What does all of this tell us? The Holy Spirit here, it's amazing that he inspired each one of the gospel writers to do the same thing. I mean, we don't have one of them spending 38% on the first 30 years, do we? They're all four in agreement doing the same thing. So this teaches us of the fact that Jesus Christ was born to die because all the emphasis is on his heading to Jerusalem in order to die. And we're going to definitely see that. Okay, let's start by looking at verses 1 to 3, Caesar's tax. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. All right, we'll stop there. The first thing that Luke recorded, and of course this is a very, very well-known chapter, Luke chapter 2, everybody knows it's the Christmas story, and you all read it at Christmas time, and you probably could say some of the parts by heart. But the first thing Luke tells us here is, uh, with regard to the birth of the Lord Jesus, is that it occurred when uh, Caesar Augustus was reigning over the Roman Empire. And we know that, that was, he reigned from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D. And under his rule, the Roman Empire actually extended further than it ever had before and that it ever has since. So when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was at its biggest, okay, under the rule of Caesar Augustus. Now, the real birth name of Augustus Caesar or Caesar Augustus was not either one of those names. His real birth name was Octavius. And he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. You've all heard of Julius Caesar, right? Julius, by the way, is where we get our month July. Augustus is where we get our month August. Just throw that in. That was free. He was the adopted son, but he wasn't really his son. He was his grand nephew. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, but I guess Julius really liked him, so he adopted him as his son because he wanted him to be the next emperor. And as was the case with most of Caesars, he was a very egocentric and arrogant man. By the way, this is also free. Did you know that the, the terms Kaiser and Tsar are derivatives of the title Caesar. Caesar is not a name, Caesar is a title. Um, but those, that's, that's just some added information there for you. Um, he, he went before the Roman Senate and he wanted some kind of a special title. I mean, Caesar wasn't enough for him. He had to have another title and King wasn't good enough and all these other titles that they came up with weren't good enough, so he had to have the name Augustus. Now, Tiffany, you're gonna love this. <laughs> He picked Augustus because it had religious significance to it. Augustus means exalted. That's a good name. 
for your son. That's a good name. And your husband, too, right? <laughs> but in his case, it was blasphemous. That's the part I hated to tell you. Because it was really, it was his attempt to deify himself. To say, you know, I'm not just a king. I'm exalted. I'm above that. So he wanted them. And the Roman Senate went along with this. And so he is known as Caesar Augustus, even though his real name is Octavius. And I, don't, I forgot to look up what that means. I don't know what Octavius means. But anyway, he signed a tax bill so as to raise money for his Roman armies and also to control his vast empire and, most importantly, to maintain his very luxurious lifestyle. <laughs> that was the most important to him. And so in order to assess this tax to every person in the Roman Empire, and in those days the Roman Empire covered 27 different provinces. Israel was just one of those. All right, in order to assess everybody a tax, a census had to be taken. Now, how many of you ever had the census taker come to your house, knock on your door, and what do they want to know? How many people live here? What are your ages? What's the income? Da 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 da. It was the same thing that a census um, did in those days. And of course, the reason they, they wanted to take the census was so that they would know how to assess a tax. Now, Let's read, um, we'll talk more about the text in a minute, but let's read about Joseph's trip in verses 4 and 5. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was out of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Um, little... I didn't mention the fact that it's in parentheses in verse 2 that Luke, remember Luke is writing as a historian and he's the only one that does this. He's the only one who tells us about events in Christ's life as far as who is reigning. And just to throw in, he told us who was, who was the governor of Syria at that time. And it was a man named Cyrenius. And I don't have time to get into this, but I'll, I'll just add it real quickly. Skeptics said that Cyrenius was not ruling at the time of Jesus Christ's birth. And so they said Luke made an error. You know, if there's one error in your Bible, you might as well throw the whole thing out because then it's not the inspired word of God. And skeptics were saying that Cyrenius didn't um, reign during the time of Christ. But archaeology always proves to be one of the Bible's good friends because archaeologists have uncovered and discovered that indeed Cyrenius reigned for two terms. And his, his second term was while Jesus Christ, during the time when Jesus Christ was born. So that was free as well. All right, little did the haughty, arrogant, egocentric Caesar Augustus or his Cyrenian governor, a Syrian governor, Cyrenius, little did either one of them realize that their taxation plan was divinely predetermined and prearranged in order to get Joseph. This was the whole reason for this tax. They thought it was to line their own pockets and to support their Roman armies and all that kind of stuff. But the whole reason was in order to get one carpenter, co common carpenter from Nazareth and his espoused wife out of Nazareth and down to where? Bethlehem. Um, now, I did want to add this. It says espoused wife, and make sure you na make note of that. She was still in kind of not his... It didn't just say his wife. It says his espouse wife. It's essentially saying that she's not his regular wife. She is still sort of his engaged wife. And why would, why would Luke throw that in? Because he had not yet consummated the marriage. Remember? Joseph left her alone. 
physically until after she gave birth to her firstborn. So every little word is so important. Anyway, so this whole tax thing was, uh, they thought they came up with it, but we know God was in control. He was orchestrating this whole thing in order to get Joseph and his espoused wife, who was very heavily pregnant, out of Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now notice on your maps that uh, Bethlehem is about 94 miles south of Nazareth. And uh, it would be a long trip for a very heavily pregnant woman. Also, what you do not really see is the difference in elevation. Nazareth is a thousand feet lower than Bethlehem. So not only are they walking 94 miles, but it's almost the whole time up, 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 which makes it even more difficult. Now in Micah 5.2, I don't know if you want to flip over there. It would maybe be good if you don't know that verse. Probably most of you do. But Micah 5.2, the scripture foretold. This is a very important verse. Micah's the last book in the... Um, no, that's Malachi. It's not. Okay, it's in the Minor Prophets. The scripture foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Now, this prophecy was given 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and it's very specific in its detail. One thing that most people do not know is that there were two Bethlehems at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus. One Bethlehem, and it is not on your map because it wasn't that important, but one Bethlehem was located in the north, about six miles southeast of Mount Carmel. However, if Jesus had been born in that northern Bethlehem, he would not have qualified to be the real Messiah because that northern Bethlehem was located in the area of land which had been distributed to the tribe of Zebulun. You know, remember there were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that land where Bethlehem in the north was, was given to the, um, the tribe of Zebulun. And we were specifically told by Jacob when he was giving a prophecy on his deathbed to his 12 sons that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. That was a messianic prophecy that, um, that, the, that the Messiah was going to come out of the tribe of Judah. So if he had been born up in the Bethlehem that was in the north, he would have come out of the tribe of Zebulun. The other Bethlehem, which is specifically in Micah 5.2, referred to as Bethlehem Ephrata, so that's in order to differentiate it from the northern Bethlehem, it was located in the southern area of Israel, which was in the land that was given to Judah, okay? So it qualified from the tribe of Judah. It was about six miles south of Jerusalem. I've been to Bethlehem years ago, and it's not really very far from Jerusalem. Bethany is only two miles, and Jerusalem is about six miles south of, I mean, Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. It was, uh, as I said, it was in the land designated to the tribe of Judah, so it, um, it would fulfill that prophecy of Genesis 49.10. Now, it was from this southern Bethlehem that Christ was born, and that did fulfill the prophecy. Um, and people... Some people have wondered why it says, and here's why I wanted to tell you the elevation, why it says in Luke 1, 4 that Joseph went up from Galilee. 
Now, if you look at your maps and you're in Nazareth and you're going to go down to Bethlehem, why in the world would it say that he was going up? Up would be north. And the reason is because everything is up. If you're going toward Jerusalem at all, anywhere in Israel, because Jerusalem sits up on a hill, Beth I mean, uh, Bethlehem was also up. It, its elevation is 2,300 feet above sea level, whereas Nazareth, Nazareth is only 1,300 feet above so sea level. So like I told you, it is up. Even though they were going south, they were going up. So again, the Bible is perfectly accurate. Now, Bethlehem Ephrata was the same Bethlehem where Ruth had met her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. The very same Bethlehem Ephrata where Ruth met Boaz. And that, as you know, was a beautiful uh, biblical account of um, a, a prophetic type. It was a picture in advance of the church and her kinsman redeemer. Uh, Ruth represented the church and Boaz represented Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, the one who redeemed her. That was the same, that all occurred in Bethlehem Ephrata. It was also the place to which the prophet uh, Samuel traveled in order to introduce Israel to her first king, her first godly appointed king. Remember when Samuel went to Bethlehem? to anoint King David. First of all, they brought out all the other sons, all the other brothers of David. And he said, no, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not that. Anyways, they finally got down to, to little David who was out there tending the sheep and Samuel, who was the first prophet of Israel, introduced Israel to her first king. Isn't that interesting? Because John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet and he also introduced Israel to her, her king, <laughs> her seed of David king, the, the true king of kings. So that's an interesting comparison there. Um, of course, it was also the birthplace of David because when Ruth met Boaz, that's where they lived in Bethlehem and Ruth was the grandmother of David. So David was born in Bethlehem. Now, another fascinating feature about the Lord's birthplace is the meaning of the name Bethlehem. And I'm sure most of you know, what does the name Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? Right, house of bread. That's what it means. Bethlehem literally in Hebrew means house of bread. What better place then for the one who said, I am the bread of life to be born? No better place for the bread of life to be born than the house of bread, right? No better place for a loaf of bread to be born than in a bakery. It's a similar thing. And then the word Ephrata, what does Ephrata mean? It means fruitful. Has there ever, ever been anyone more fruitful, spiritually speaking, than Jesus Christ, the true vine? You know, we all have to be on the true vine in order to produce fruit. So it's a beautiful name for the Lord's birthplace. House of bread and fruitful. Herod the Great... I'll put his picture back up here. The ruler of uh, both Judea and Samaria at the time. Now, he's not the Roman emperor, okay? He's the king, the usurper king over Israel and Samaria at the time of Christ's birth. 
And we talked about him a little bit before. He was a very cruel man. Remember, he's the one who had all the nobles killed. His last decree was that all his nobles would be killed so that somebody was crying at his funeral. They weren't crying for him. They were crying for the nobles. He also had his, his son um, executed. Well, he not only had one son executed, he had three, a total of three. He had many sons, but he had a total of three of his sons killed. He also had his wife murdered. And while he was going about all that, he might as well throw in his mother-in-law. So he had his mother-in-law killed too. I mean, he was a wicked, awful, horrible person. Remember, he's the one who had all the little baby boys, two and under, killed in Bethlehem. Well, when Herod the Great received Augustus Caesar's order to take a census over the lands that he controlled, Israel and Samaria, he had a choice to make he was faced with a decision. He could choose the Jewish way of taking a tax, which was by way of a head count. Okay, it was a very easy way of doing it. You just say, how many people in your family? Five, okay. Each one got taxed exactly the same amount. So you just take a head count. Nobody had to move from where they lived. They would just assess you an equal amount for every person in your family. So he could choose the Jewish way of taking the tax or he could choose the Roman way of uh, taking up a tax. Now, the Roman law of census for tax purposes stated this, whosoever has property in another city must deliver his tax declaration in that city. Now, the Jewish people over whom he reigned had both a place of residence and a place of inheritance, inheritance and oftentimes those two places were not one and the same. And this was the case with Mary and Joseph. They had a place of residence. They lived up in Nazareth in Galilee. However, their place of inheritance was where? Down in Bethlehem, because they were both descended from the line of Judah through David. And therefore, according to Levitical law, um, their property that they owned down there in Bethlehem, they probably didn't have much, a little piece of something somewhere, that they always kept that. No, no tribe could sell their land to another tribe. So it was always kept within the, the same tribe. The law said they could never, ever sell their land. Now, since the primary monetary value of a Jewish person was in his inheritance, the Romans were interested in assessing a tax on the Jew according to the inheritance rather than the head tax. You know, rather than doing it the Jewish way, they, Herod the Great decided he would do it the Roman way because that way he would actually bring in more money. Um, I don't have time to get into details, but he was a greedy man, and the Roman way of assessing a tax would just bring more money into his, his own pocket. And so which way did he select? Now, he thought this was his own decision, but you and I know God was sovereign over all of this, and he was orchestrating everything. Herod the Great chose the Roman method of taxing instead of the Jewish way and this was this meant that Mary and Joseph had to leave Nazareth and they both had to go down to the city of David because they were both descendants of David and they had to register there for the census now think for a minute just think of the significance of that one little decision made by Herod the Great if he had chosen the Jewish method of taking the tax then Mary and Joseph would not have had to travel 94 miles uphill to Bethlehem. And where would Jesus Christ have been born? In Nazareth. Right. 
And would that have fulfilled Micah 5.2, which predicted he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata? Would he therefore qualify to be the Messiah? No, because if he does not fulfill all 333 Old Testament prophecies regarding him, if he doesn't fulfill just even one of them, he disqualifies. So just think of the significance of that one decision. Um, by the fact that Mary and Joseph were still in Nazareth, think of this also. They were still in Nazareth during her final weeks. It says she was great with child. They were still up there. What does that tell them of their understanding of the significance of Micah 5.2? It tells us that Mary and Joseph obviously had not thought about Micah 5.2. And a lot of the Jewish people missed the significance of Micah 5.2. If they had realized that their baby boy, who was to be the Messiah, as they'd been told by Gabriel, that he was to be born in Bethlehem, Everton, do you think they would have waited till the last minute to go down there? So it tells us really that they didn't know, they didn't get the significance of that prophecy. They were still up in Nazareth. They had planned to have baby Jesus in Nazareth. So it wasn't man fulfilling prophecy. It wasn't them purposely going there so he would fulfill the prophecy. God was in charge of all of this. Also, um, think about the fact that it was another miracle, really, that Mary survived that long uphill trip being heavily um, pregnant. <laughs> and she was young, too. She was just a young girl. Probably wasn't very big of a person. And just think how, how that was really a miracle that she did not deliver prematurely or that she did not harm the child or herself. Satan, you know, knew who was in her womb. And he would have, don't you know, he would have been very busy trying to cause some kind of physical harm to Mary on this long, arduous trip that they had, you know, down to Bethlehem in the late stage of her pregnancy. I think it was a miracle that, that God kept her from delivering early, probably kept snakes off the trail and, you know, all kinds of things that Satan probably was trying to, I think of uh, rocks sliding down from the mountains or whatever he might have done to try to prevent them from ever getting there. So that in itself, and I, don't, I think that's something we probably don't even think about, was a miracle. And, you know, um, that what-if scenario had actually happened. It had happened in the Old Testament. It happened with Rachel. Remember? Rachel, the wife of um, Jacob. She was also traveling while pregnant. And she ended up dying. She didn't make it. She ended up dying just outside of Bethlehem, Ephrata, while giving birth prematurely to Benjamin. Same thing could have happened to Mary. What if Mary had delivered right outside of Bethlehem, Ephrata, even a mile away? She, he still would not have been born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. So everything, you know how God has to have every little detail. He works it out. He actually had, it's funny you think about it, he had the whole Roman Empire moving around. People moving from one place to another just so he could get Mary and Joseph, two common, un, totally unknown people, down to Bethlehem at the right time, the right place, perfect. Everything God does, perfect, right to the the right minute. I mean, they, they didn't get there one minute too early, did they? As you know, with the story. All right, let's look at Mary's time, speaking of that. Um, <clears throat> verses 6 and 7. 
And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, of course, you know this story so well, they found that the small village, and it wasn't a very big village, about 7,000 people in Bethlehem. I think that's today's population. I don't know what it was back then. They, they, um, but now it was filled with people because David had many descendants, and every descendant of David had to go to Bethlehem for the census. But the village was crowded. There wasn't enough room for everybody. All the Hotel 8s and the Days Inn, and the <laughs> they were all filled up and um, with people who had come to register for the census. Now, Frederick Farrar, in his book on the studies in the life of Christ, describes for us, and I hope you can see that. Oh, that's the wrong picture. Wait, here we go. If you can look at this while I'm reading this description, you can see it. He describes for us what a first century inn was like. Here's what he says. An inn, or it might have been called a con, K-A-H-N, was a low structure built of rough stones and generally only a single story high. Here, I think this one is two. It consisted for the most part of a square enclosure in which the cattle would be tied up in safety for the night and an arched recess, which is what you have um, here, you see these arched recesses, for the accommodation of travelers. Now the recess would contain low, small rooms with no front wall on them. Therefore, everything was public. Everything that took place in every room was visible to every other person in the inn. Now, how's that for living in a fishbowl? They were also totally devoid of even the simplest furniture. There wasn't even a, a, a nightstand in there. No bed, no telephone, no TV, nothing. The traveler may bring his own carpet and sit cross-legged upon it for his meals and may lay on it at night. As a general rule, the traveler also brought his own food attended to his own animals and drew his own water. He would pay a mere trifle for the advantage of shelter and of safety and a floor on which to lie. And this would definitely be safer than being out in the open somewhere. Okay? However, if a traveler arrived too late and the recesses were all occupied by earlier guests, he would have no choice but to be content with such accommodation as he could find in the courtyard below and secure for himself and his family such small amount of cleanliness and decency as are compatible with an unoccupied corner on the filthy area where the horses, mules, and cattle were kept." End of quote. Now that very possibly describes the type of situation which Mary and Joseph found themselves in on the night of the birth of the Lord Jesus. All the inns like this were full. Maybe the innkeeper found them some little corner um, where the, the animals were kept, and maybe that's where they were. Now, another possibility is that Jesus may have been born in a cave because there were many, are many limestone caves around the area of Bethlehem, and uh, limestone is easy to carve out, so a lot of times they would make the cave into a little place where animals could be kept, and they would actually carve a manger so they could put the food for the animals in the manger. So he may also have been born in a cave outside of Bethlehem somewhere. Now, wherever they spent the night, one thing is known for sure. Mary's child was born in the very humblest of circumstances because he was born in an area where animals were kept. We know that. 
uh, because when he was born, what was he placed in? He was placed in a manger. And a manger is an animal food trough. It's where they put food for animals. He who is the bread of life came down from heaven to the house of bread to satisfy the spiritual hunger for a starving world. So, therefore, what could be more appropriate for him to be placed in a food trough? Right? He's the bread of life. He came to, star to feed the starving, so he was placed in a manger. Um, and it was made out of wood. Just like the last thing in his life, he was laid on wood, an old wooden cross. Here he was laid at his birth on an old wooden manger. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid aside his glory, not his deity, he laid aside his glory to come to earth in a temporal body in order to be the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So therefore, what better place for a lamb to be born than in a kind of a stable, right? Perfect. Luke 2.7 tells us that after Jesus was born, what did Mary wrap him in? Swaddling clothes. And again, this speaks of um, the future. It's prophetic. It's very significant because swaddling clothes, sometimes the women wrap their, their middles with strips of cloth so that they always had them handy. They just would wrap them around their waist. And she had a lot because her waist was way out there. <laughs> oh, that's a joke supposed to laugh. Wake up! <laughs> but strips of cloth or bands of cloth were normally used in wrapping the body of the dead. This is what the Lord Jesus, when he was taken down from that old wooden cross, his body was wrapped in swaddling cloths, long strips of cloth. So again, this is all pointing to the fact that Jesus was born to die. And what better way to illustrate this than for him to be wrapped in burial clothing at the time of his birth. Well, let's move real quickly, and we'll close up with this, the shepherd's tidings. And for this, we'll look at verses 8 to 20. It says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. I love that, don't you? Soar, afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Oh, that's the all I was looking for. I just found it. It wasn't over. Zacharias didn't say it. The angel said it. Okay, that's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. He says all people will be blessed. You know, not just the Jews. All families of the earth will be blessed. All right. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. They didn't ask for one, but they're going to get one. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. I can hear the... Handel's Messiah, as I'm reading that. I can hear the music in my ears. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. 
And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. All right, let's see. James 2.5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? I read that because God chose shepherds, you know, the poor of this world, to reveal this wonderful truth to. He didn't choose the priests. He didn't choose the scribes or the Pharisees or, or Herod the Great or Cyrenius or any of the rulers at that time, but he chose poor, lowly shepherds to hear this fantastic revelation. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The things of God, you know, <clears throat> are often hidden from the noble and the great of this world. You know, it's very rare to even have a president in the United States who is a Christian. There are not many down through the centuries, there have not been many rulers and noble people who have actually known the Lord. There have been some, but compared to the common people, they're few and far between. Instead, God reveals his truths mostly to the poor, the weak, the foolish, and the lowly, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27-28. Moses, think of Moses. Moses was keeping sheep when he was called to speak for God from a burning bush. Gideon was threshing wheat. He was just, you know, a farmer out there doing his thing when his heavenly message came. Elisha was plowing. There you go, another farmer. David, what was David doing? when Samuel had him called out. Again, he was just keeping sheep. Furthermore, if you think about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what were all of they? They were farmers. I mean, not farmers, they were ranchers. They kept sheep and goats and cattle. The birth announcement of the Messiah to shepherds is one of the first indications that acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ would primarily come from the common people. Every indication from historical records shows us, and this is interesting, that these particular shepherds on that night outside of Bethlehem who received this first message of the birth of Christ were temple shepherds. In other words, they were hired by the temple, the, the priests of the temple, to tend the sheep which would be offered as sacrifice. You know, when people came to Jerusalem, sometimes they brought their own lamb to offer, but sometimes they waited till they got there to purchase a lamb to offer. And so these temple, these shepherds right outside of Jerusalem were temple shepherds. They raised the sheep that were sold in the temple to be the sacrifices. Again, we can see how perfect it is that the announcement of the birth of the once-for-all sacrificial lamb, you know, he who would be the fulfillment of all lambs ever slain on bloody altars would be made to a group of men who tended and cared for and raised the lambs, which would be sold for sacrificial purposes in the temple. 
they would no longer have a job. <laughs> Jesus was going to put them out of business because he was the once-for-all lamb. After his sacrifice on the cross, there was no more need for sacrifices of lambs. So a transition, a transition, an important transition was about to occur. Sheep would no longer die for the sins of the shepherds. The shepherd, the good shepherd, was coming to die for the sheep. No, no group of people would be better able to understand and appreciate the birth of the good shepherd than shepherd themselves, shepherds themselves. So they had, and you know, they were looked down upon by the, the Jews overall, especially the Jerusalem Jews looked down upon shepherds. They considered them unclean. It's amazing to me that they did that when their own patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all shepherds, but they looked down on the shepherds. Well, Luke 2.9 states that when the angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds, he, uh, it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. I have a picture of that. Here it is. Now, the glory of the Lord, that's interesting, too, because that's the same Shekinah glory which appeared back in the temple in Exodus 40. And it's the same glory. Remember how it appeared and it, it was over the um, Holy of Holies in the temple? And then remember the prophet Ezekiel, the sad account of him watching the glory depart from the temple? He slowly sees it leave and, and then Ichabod is written over the temple. It was, that means, Ichabod means the glory has departed. And it was um, 500 years since Ezekiel saw the glory depart from the temple. And the glory had never returned to the temple or to Israel. They'd never seen the Shekinah glory of God again for 500 years. And now the first time in 500 years, the glory is back. The glory, this is the Shekinah glory of God, which is with these, the angel of the Lord that appeared to these shepherds. Um, and so this is a visible sign, you see. It's a visible sign of God's presence among them again, finally, after 500 years of absence. And it was seen by a handful of temple shepherds. Naturally, they were sore afraid until the angel spoke to them. Everybody who ever sees angels is always afraid, right? The angel always seems like they always have to say the first thing is what? Fear not. So he, the first thing he said is, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There's that reference to the, uh, the universal availability of salvation. It isn't just for the Jews. It's for all who will believe. It's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that was all families of the earth would be blessed. All right. Um, and then he says, where would the child be? Where would the Savior be born? The city of David. And those temple shepherds, they were, in, they were right outside of Bethlehem. They knew that the city of David was Bethlehem. And this is a reference to the Davidic covenant. The one that was to be born would not only be a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to all people, but he would be a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because he was going to be born in the city of David. He was going to fulfill God's promise to David. Um, now, such a momentous announcement required a sign. They, di they didn't ask for one, like I told you, but the angel gave the shepherds a sign as in order to verify the divine authorship of what, they had, what he had just proclaimed. I keep thinking, it's, just, it's not many angels yet, okay? Many angels suddenly appear later. But right now, the message they get is from just one angel. And so the sign that he gave them was that he would, they would find, if they went to the city of David, they would find a babe, what? Wrapped 
in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, a sign has to be something out of the ordinary, right? Otherwise, it isn't, doesn't qualify as a sign, a divine sign. That's why when they misinterpret Isaiah 7:14 and say a married woman shall have a child, that doesn't really qualify for much of a sign. That happens all the time. That's not out of the ordinary. So he was giving them an out of ordinary sign. You did not normally find um, children wrapped in burial clothes, and you didn't normally find a newborn lying in a food trough. This was something unusual, especially for the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. I mean, wouldn't you expect to find him in a priestly palace? Some, I mean, a, a kingly palace, or at least in the high priest's house or something, not just wrapped in, in strips of cloth, but with some luxurious purple velvet little nightie or, you know, in a, in, a, in a beautiful little cradle. You'd expect something much more magnificent for the Christ child, the Messiah, instead of finding him in a food trough in burial clothes. So this was definitely a sign. Uh, so then, okay, the angel is finished speaking, and then suddenly in verses 13, verse 13, all of a sudden the whole sky was filled with the, a host of he heavenly angels. And um, their pre they, this would have been magnificent. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a temple shepherd back in those days? Well, and there, this was in Shepherd's Field. I've seen where Shepherd's Field is. The tradition said, they say they know where they were. And it's just a field, just an ordinary flat field. And Bethlehem is right over there. It's not too far. Outside of Bethlehem was this, this field. It would be a perfect place for this to happen, you know, on a nice clear night. All of a sudden, the whole sky was lit up with a host of heavenly angels, and they're praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I get <clears throat> choked up thinking about it. Wouldn't you like to go back in time and just be able to be at certain places? I always say there's certain. The one place I think of all, I've told the women this before, that I would like to have been was on the road to Emmaus with Jesus when he went through the whole Old Testament and pointed out to them all the places that spoke of him. Now, I would have loved to have heard that because there's so many pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament, so many places that point to him, and I know I've missed probably, I know a lot of them, but there's probably some right before my eyes that I've missed, and I would have loved to have been with him on that walk. But this is another place I would have loved to have been with those shepherds on that night when the whole sky lit up with angels. The birth of Christ, they were saying, was going to bring glory to God. Christ was not only going to redeem men, he was going to reveal his father to men. And one day, yet future, he is going to reign. And then, and only then, will there be peace on earth and goodwill toward all men. Well, we find very quickly in closing that the shepherds immediately obeyed the word of the Lord. And they didn't question like Zacharias. They obeyed. And with haste. They went to find the babe, and they found him just exactly as had been predicted, dressed in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. These obedient, simple men had the enormous privilege of being the first in all mankind, the first of all mankind, after, of course, after Mary and Joseph, to see with believing eyes the newborn Savior of the world. Isn't that a wonderful privilege and honor? They also had the very special privilege and honor to be the first evangelists. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 17, 
that they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. You know, I told you they were going to lose their jobs. They wouldn't need to raise um, temple sheep anymore. There would be no more need for sheep after the Lord Jesus Christ died once for all. It was the final and, you know, the Lamb of God that all the other lambs had pointed to. So they'd be out of a job. But God gave them a new job. What was their new job? To be evangelists, to be witnesses for him. Why were they so willingly eager, do you think, to share their good news with others? And even possibly with people who looked down on them, because most people look down on shepherds. Why were they so full of praise to God? Why? Well, obviously it was because they had come face to face with their Lord and Savior, the one who had been promised to come for, for thousands of years, and their hearts were so on fire and so ignited you know, by his presence in their midst and what this was going to mean, that they just couldn't help it. They couldn't keep quiet, and that's how it should be with you and I, right? We know him, and we should be spreading, just like them, we should be spreading the news abroad. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and how can we even begin to thank you for this, this wonderful, wonderful story? Um, we, we know it so well, but there's so much truth in it, so much significance. It is such a wonderful, wonderful truth that Jesus Christ did come to humble himself, to be, uh, become a man, to even, even be born in, in the most humblest of circumstances, to be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a food trough. Father, help us to be like these shepherds. Help us, Father, um, to, to be so excited to spread the word concerning all that we know and have heard about this special child who became our Lord and our Savior. Father, I thank you again for these women. I thank you for their hunger to get to know you better. And I pray if there should be one here who has never come to see with seeing eyes, eyes of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ as her own Savior and Lord, I pray that you would not give her rest until she makes that all-important decision. Father, we will give you praise and glory as you alone deserve it. We thank you that you do orchestrate all things. We see that you move the whole Roman world around just to get two people to a certain location on time. Therefore, we can know and trust that you can orchestrate the events in our lives. And we just, we just surrender to that fact and help us not to worry, to trust you completely. Lord, we love you and I ask that you go with each woman and bring her back safely next week for a praying Christ's name. Amen.